to remain standing for the reading of God's word in honor of the author of our of our scriptures. Um, we're reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You find this in, on page 1165 in our Pew Bible. Once again, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, is, as Pastor Bruce continues in his series in Philippians. Follow along as I read, beginning in, chap- in, in verse 5, rather. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, we praise you and thank you that your name can be proclaimed and is proclaimed in our church and in our hearts and in our lives. And God, we just say thank you and praise you for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, today we come to one of the most important passages of Scripture in the New Testament on Jesus Christ. This passage is... uh, I liken it to a majestic mountaintop, a majestic mountain peak that is peak that is just kind of towering over the valley below. You might call it, uh, it's kind of like the Mount Everest of theological truth. In fact, these seven verses here that Bill read for us have generated more scholarly comment, more theological writings than all the other 97 verses of Philippians put together, and for good reason. This passage of scripture here, the one we're going to look at, the one that kind of frightens me to do so, because I'm not sure I'm worthy enough to even speak about this, is one of the clearest and fullest descriptions in the Bible about the divine nature of Jesus Christ, about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. And at the same time, Paul's primary purpose here is not so much to give us a lesson in theology, Though he certainly does that. But rather what Paul wants to do is provide us an example in humility to follow. We need to remember the context. Paul's calling us to live in Christian unity and to do so through Christ-like humility that began back in chapter 1, verse 27, and continues all the way through this chapter here in Philippians. Now, given our, including myself, our our natural bent to be self-centered, it's always been difficult to live with Christ-like humility. And so Paul does something here. He is targeting 
pride in our own lives by writing, if you remember what we saw two weeks ago in verses 3 and 4, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Why? Because that's what we are. That's who we are by nature. And so he's targeting that. He's going after it. He is battling our pride and our self-ambition. And he says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul is pleading with us here for the sake of the advancement of the gospel to live in Christian unity. How? By laying aside our selfish ambitions, our personal rights, our desire for attention that he knows threatens the unity and harmony in the church. And so now what Paul does, and I just love the Apostle Paul because he's so logical. And I know, you know, not all of us are that way. Our minds don't work that way, but mine does. And so I love how you can always, in Paul's writings, there's always a logical thing for how he writes and reason and he connects the dots in here. And so that's what he's doing again here. He's now appealing to us and he appeals specifically to Jesus Christ as this ultimate example of humility that we are now to follow. And he does so by quoting a hymn that was more than likely sung by the early church in praise of Jesus Christ. And so notice the big idea of what Paul's doing here. The ultimate example, Paul is magnifying the humiliation of Jesus Christ and the exaltation of Jesus Christ as our ultimate example in crushing the kingdom of me mentality. Several years ago, the Chicago Tribune ran a story about Kevin Bow and his own country, which he named the Republic of Malaysia. In fact, Kevin even had this khaki uniform tailor-made with gold ribbon and six big medals along with a blue, white, and green sash. And he answers to His Excellency. The article goes on and said, If you've never heard of the Republic of Malaysia, that's because it consists of Kevin's three-bedroom house in 1.3-acre yard outside his home in Nevada. He does have a sense of humor about his claim, though. He claims to have a space program, but laughingly pointed, to, pointed the reporter to a plastic model rocket. He claims to have a public railway system, but it's only a toy train. His national sport is broom ball, and his navy is just an inflatable boat stored in the garage. And even though he's tongue-in-cheek about it, he is still serious about it being his kingdom. In fact, he even calls it the kingdom of me. And so while we may somewhat silently chuckle about Kevin's little homemade kingdom, it reveals the potential in every human heart that we want lives that revolve around the kingdom of me. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that this self-centered pride of ours is the mortal enemy of unity and harmony in the church. And so Paul lifts up Jesus Christ as our ultimate example of humility by in crushing this kingdom of me mentality that affects us all. Think about it. Here's Jesus Christ before us that Paul's lifting up. And who is he? He's none other than the sovereign king who descended from his kingdom in heaven to come to earth to redeem us from our sins. This is the example that Paul sets before us to follow. It's an example that crushes the kingdom of me mentality that invades all of our hearts. 
And so what does Christ's example of humility, what does it show us now? Well, that's what I wanted to unpack for you. I want you to see this for yourselves because it shows us three truths. It shows us three lessons that we need to grab hold of here this morning. The first of which is Christ-like humility is continually needful. It's continually needful. Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And so this verse builds a bridge between verses 1 through 4 and verses 6 through 11. It's the link between Paul's exhortation to us in those previous verses and his illustration for us in these next set of verses. And so when Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, this mind that he's referring to actually refers back to verses 1 through 4 where Paul exhorts us to have a mind of what? A mind of humility. And have this mind carries the idea of having a mentality, having an attitude, having a mindset. In other words, it's a frame of mind. It's a way of thinking that we are to have as Christ followers. And then in verses 6 through 11, Paul recounts for us Jesus' mission of self-sacrifice in order to illustrate what this mind of humility that he's calling us to have actually looks like. So why is Paul going to such great lengths to emphasize this humble mindset? After all, he spends seven verses on it. Because Paul understands the need here. He understands this great need for Christ-like humility. Paul knows that Christ-like humility is essential to Christian unity. In fact, Christ-like humility is continually needful in the community of the church if we're going to have Christian unity in the church. Think about it. Is there ever a time when Christ-like humility is not needed? Is there ever a time when it's not needed in your relationships with one another? Is there ever a time when it's not needed even in your own home? No, this mindset is continually needed. Why? Because we're always battling self-centered pride. The moment we stop battling pride is the moment that it rears its ugly head. And it does so in our lives and in our church. In fact, C.S. Lewis once said, Pride is the chief cause of misery in every nation and family since the world began. How true that is. As we know, it was pride that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. It was pride that got Adam and Eve banished from the Garden of Eden. It was pride that caused King Saul to forfeit his throne in Israel. It was pride that caused King Nebuchadnezzar to lose his sanity and to act like a wild beast. And so pride is the cancer of the soul. And if it's left untreated, it will destroy unity within the community of the church. Paul knows this. In fact... Jesus himself knows this. For the end of his ministry, an ugly, competitive spirit developed even among his disciples. When James and John, and if you can believe it, their mother, tried to get Jesus to promise them positions of power in the kingdom. Matthew reports in Matthew 20, 24, when the ten of them heard it, the ten other disciples, they were indignant at these two brothers. 
Harsh words, angry gestures were exchanged among the disciples as their tempers flared. And so Jesus calls them together and he tells them in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how do we crush this kingdom of me mentality? We do so through Christ-like humility. That's why Paul says, have this mindset. Have this mind of humility among yourselves. In other words, have it among the community in the church. Have this mind is even in the present tense, which means we are to have this kind of mindset continually among ourselves. So the need to crush the kingdom of me by having the mind of humility, it is continual. It's never ceasing. It's never to stop. It is a constant battle we are engaged in. So the first thing we learn from Christ's example of humility is that Christ-like humility is continually needful. The second thing we learn here is, number two, Christ-like humility is deliberately mindful, though. It's deliberately mindful. The scripture is clear. Jesus deliberately chose a life of humility. In fact, look again what Paul writes in verses 6 through 8. Speaking of Christ, he says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus' humble mindset here was a matter of choice. Listen, he was under no obligation whatsoever to humble himself, and yet it was in his mind, it was in his heart to humble himself for our sakes. Nobody, and I mean nobody, humbles themselves unintentionally or accidentally. You know anybody like that? No, this doesn't happen. Why? Because we are prideful by nature. We are self-centered by nature. We have this kingdom of me mentality. That's who we are. And so no one passively assumes a humble mindset. Christ-like humility is a mindset that we must deliberately choose. We must deliberately have. And this deliberate mindset involves, if you want to just write over verses 6 through 8, it involves this. It is all about giving up our rights. That's simple. In the midst of all these doctrinal descriptions about Jesus, don't lose sight of the primary issue of what Jesus is doing in these verses. He's deliberately giving up his rights as God. Jesus gave up his right to live like God, to act like God, to look like God, to be treated like God. Jesus refused to hold on to his rights as God. Instead, he deliberately chose to give them up for the sake of sinners like us here this morning. Now, this mindset is so contrary to our culture in which we live in today, is it not? It's the antithesis of the culture we have. 
We live in a culture where people protect their so-called rights at all costs and by all means necessary. Several years ago, Newsweek magazine ran an article illustrating our lawsuit craze society. It referenced a 17-year-old Maryland girl who tried out for her high school football team. If the school administrators had prevented her from playing, her, quote, rights would have been violated and she could have easily sued. So what do they do? They let her play. And in the very first scrimmage, she got hurt. Her parents sued the school district for $1.5 million on the grounds that no one told her of the potential risk of serious injury inherent in the sport of football. Right. In another lawsuit, Amber Carson slipped on a spilled drink in a Philadelphia restaurant and broke a bone in the fall. She sued the restaurant for damages, and the jury found the restaurant liable and ordered it to compensate Mrs. Carson $113,000. Now, which is somewhat surprising given the fact that the spilled drink was hers, which she had thrown in her boyfriend's face 30 seconds earlier before she got up to walk out of the restaurant. But it still wasn't her fault. Right. Kathleen Robertson was awarded $85,000 after breaking her ankle when she tripped over a toddler who was running through a furniture store in Texas. As you might imagine, the store owners were especially surprised by the jury verdict, given the fact that the toddler was her own. Frankly, all we ever hear about today are the complaints of people who demand their rights. And when their rights have been violated, they think they deserve compensation or reparation. We rarely today hear of anyone who actually, voluntarily, humbly gave up their rights for someone less deserving. Well, there was someone who did. Someone who literally gave up his rights for the benefit of people who did not deserve God's mercy and grace. And his name is Jesus Christ. Notice the humble descent of our Savior. Jesus started at the highest place. That is equality with God. Jesus Christ, listen to me, he existed eternally, not only before Bethlehem, but even before the creation of the world itself. He was in the form of God, and he had equality with God. In other words, Jesus was God by nature and in status from eternity past, before he ever came into the world as a human being. Speaking of Jesus, John tells us in John verses 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And so understand, Jesus has never been some junior partner to God Almighty but rather a full-fledged member of the Godhead, equal with Almighty God in every way, in every shape, in every form from eternity past. And so when we talk about Jesus Christ, we are not talking about someone that is less than God. We are talking about someone who, in Paul's words in Colossians 1.15, is the express image of God. And so Jesus started at the highest place. Equality with God. But again, don't miss Paul's point at the end of verse 6 here. When he says Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be what? Grasp. 
In other words, Jesus did not count his equality with God as a pretext for grasping and holding on, but rather as a platform now for giving and giving for us. This word grasp, it means holding on to something and doing so by force. It's like a robber holding on to his stolen loot. Every privilege of deity belonged to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is God. And yet, he did not hold on to the glory of his deity as something to be used for his own benefit, for his own advantages. No, as St. Clair Ferguson writes, Jesus didn't grasp or jealousy guard his rights as the Son of God. Christ did not view his divine rights as something that he must hang on to with a tight fist. Instead, Christ willingly opened up his hands and he allowed his divine privileges to slip from his grasp for you and I. Jesus is about to do something incredible here. He's about to demonstrate this incredible humility in leaving his place of glory in heaven, in descending down to our dusty planet. It's interesting because it's the reverse of what we as human beings want to do. What is in our nature? We want to climb the ladder up. And we do so by holding on to every right we think we own. Everything we have. But Jesus came down by releasing his divine rights. As Sam Gordon describes, instead of climbing the ladder up, Jesus stepped down one rung at a time. And he did so for you. And for me. Jesus descended. But before that, he started at the highest place. And now we see he descended to the lowest place. He emptied himself. Paul traces Jesus' descent in two stages here. We're familiar with them. We celebrated them. One at Christmas and one at Easter. It's his incarnation and crucifixion. Verse 7 focuses on Christ's incarnation when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself. But what in the world does that even mean, right? Jesus emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? Well, we can be sure of one thing. It does not mean that Jesus emptied himself of any of his divine attributes. Such as emptying somehow by subtraction. Listen, if Jesus did such a thing for even one moment, he would cease to be God. So it doesn't mean Jesus emptied himself of his deity or even exchanged his deity for his humanity. Listen, rather it means that Jesus gave up his rights as God. It means he laid aside his heavenly glory and his divine privileges that belonged to him as God. Now, the rest of verse 7, Paul actually helps us understand more of this emptying self and what it means when Paul writes, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so Jesus' act of, quote, emptying himself was in his act now of taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, in other words, in the flesh. 
It was emptying, not by subtraction, but by addition. In other words, Jesus added humanity. He did not surrender his deity. Jesus embraced a role now here, get this, of insignificance. Which again, is is so opposite of what we want to do. He assumes the form of what? Paul is specific. He says a servant, a bond slave, without abandoning his divine nature as God. As Don Carson explains it this way, Jesus abandoned his rights. He became a nobody. And that's exactly what we read in the Gospels when he was born. That's the whole point here. Jesus humbled himself by releasing, letting go of his rights, taking on the form of a nobody, a servant, and then being born in the likeness of men. Brian Chappell tells the story of a tribal chief in Africa who also happened to be the strongest man in the village. And as the chief, he also wears this very large headdress and ceremonial robe. And one day a man carrying water out of the shaft of a deep well fell all the way down and broke his leg. And there he lay helpless at the bottom of the well. And because no one in the village was strong enough to climb down and carry this helpless man up out of the well, they summoned the chief. When he saw the plight of the man, he took his headdress off, laid it aside, took off his robe, and climbed all the way down to the bottom, put the injured man on his back, and brought him up to safety. He did what no other man in the village could do. And that's what Jesus has done for you. He came to rescue us. And to do so, he laid aside his heavenly glory, just like the chief did with his headdress, in order to save us. Now, did the chief cease being the chief when he laid aside his headdress? No. And did Jesus cease being God when he came to rescue us? No, this is the mystery of the incarnation when Jesus surrendered his right to live like God, to act like God, to look like God, and to be treated like God while still being God in human flesh. Now, the result of all this humility leads, as we know the story from the gospel, and as we celebrated last week, the incarnation was all for the purpose of his crucifixion. And we see this in verse 8. Where Paul writes, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this verse reminds us, oh, does it remind us, that Jesus, listen to me, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. No one humbled Jesus. Herod did not humble him. Pilate did not humble him. The high priest did not humble him. The Romans did not humble him. Jesus deliberately humbled himself. And the implication that Paul's making here is that we must do the same. We must crush the kingdom of me mentality. How? By following the very example that Paul is lifting up before us. Christ's example of humility. This verse also tells us that Jesus' death, did you see this? Did you notice that it required what? It required his obedience. Now that's interesting. 
Because our death doesn't, does it? Our death does not require obedience on our behalf. You see, for us, death isn't a matter of obedience. We die whether we want to or not, whether we choose to or not, in a sense. But death had no control over Jesus. He deliberately and willingly and obediently gave up his life for our sakes. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, back in John 10, 18, no one takes it, referring to his life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This is what Paul means now when he writes in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as you read this verse, it's easy to sense Paul's astonishment by all this. And I hope even now you're sitting there going, oh my word, I can't believe what I'm reading. I can't believe what I'm hearing about Jesus here. This is unbelievable. This is shocking, surprising, astonishing, whatever. He can't believe that Jesus died. Why? He's God. But you think that he experienced even death on a cross? That is mind-boggling to the Apostle Paul. This phrase, it serves as the rock bottom of Christ's humility in the most gripping part of his obedience. Jesus was giving up his right to be treated like God and instead to be treated like a criminal or a slave with his death on the cross. Listen, this is the ultimate insult in Jesus' day. To die by crucifixion. In fact, Roman citizens could not be crucified because it was so appalling. The Jews in Jesus' day believed that a person was cursed if he died on a cross, according to Galatians 3.13. And yet here is Jesus, God in the flesh, dying on a cross for sinners like you, like me. Jesus gave up his right to be treated like God. He endured the physical agony and the shame on the cross. He bore the curse of sin and the wrath of God in place of sinners. And you say, why? Why would Jesus do this? Well, John tells us why in John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave, listen to this, the, the right to become children of God. There's your right. You want to claim a right? Claim that right. Jesus gave up his rights that he deserved so that we could now have a right that we do not deserve to be included in the very family of God, his eternal family, to be forgiven, to be cleansed and redeemed in that family. Jesus did this for us. And he did it. This is amazing. He did it with joy. With joy. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, in other words, because of what he did on the cross, he's the author of it all, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And of course, this leads us to the last lesson we learned from Christ's example of humility. Christ-like humility is eternally hopeful. It is so hopeful. Now, the world will never tell you that. Your boss at work will probably never tell you that. Your neighbors will never tell you this. But Christ-like humility, it is deliberately mindful. And yes, it is oftentimes even painful. 
But Jesus shows us that humility is always hopeful. It looks to a future when God will exalt the humble. The first word in verse 9 here is what? What is it? Shout it. Therefore, that little word marks the dramatic turning point where Jesus' self-humiliation now is reversed by the Father's supreme exaltation of His Son. In verses 9 through 11, describe God's sovereign response to His Son's humiliation. Look at it one more time. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what we see here are two parts to this glorious ascent of Jesus Christ. You have the highest place and the greatest name that Paul talks about. Jesus has been given universal authority because he's been exalted to the highest place. And so now we've come full circle. Jesus started at the highest place, and God exalts him back to the highest place. This phrase, highly exalted here that Paul uses, it means to super elevate. And that's exactly what God did. He super elevated his son to the highest place. God exalted Jesus to a position of supreme majesty and glory when he resurrected from the grave, ascended back to heaven, where he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And that right hand, You know what it signifies? Universal authority over all. God not only exalted Jesus to the highest place, but he also bestowed upon him the greatest name that is above every name. And this raises the obvious question, well, what name was that? Now, at first glance, it might seem like it's the personal name Jesus that is bestowed here by God the Father on Jesus since Paul goes on to say that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. But if you read down to verse 11, that's where Paul actually identifies what name God bestowed upon him. And it's Lord. You see, the issue here is the name given to Jesus. And God bestows on Jesus the name Lord. And that name signifies his universal authority overall. In fact, here's what's interesting, mind-boggling in fact. This name, Lord, is God's own name, Yahweh, that fills so much of the Old Testament. And so giving Jesus the name Lord, or Yahweh, is the ultimate of all honors, because God says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh, that is my name, I will not yield my glory to another, or my praise to idols, And yet here God is bestowing that name on Jesus Christ. He is super exalted. This name, Lord or Yahweh, let me tell you, it is a name that trumps all names. The fact that Jesus is exalted to the highest place and given the greatest name means that he reigns over all. There is no debate about that. Jesus Christ alone has been given universal authority. Jesus is Lord. That means not Caesar in Paul's day. 
And as Lord, Jesus is the supreme ruler of the universe. And you say, what's the implication of all that? That Jesus has universal authority as this exalted Lord now. And the implication is Jesus, one day, he will be given, notice it, universal worship. He will be given universal worship. Notice again the result of Jesus' exaltation as Lord. And now Paul is quoting Isaiah 45, 23, in which we read for our call to worship. And he applies that quote in Isaiah now here to Jesus in verses 10 through 11, where he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is universal worship of Jesus as Lord. And let me tell you, it will not be denied. Did you notice this? The physical response is what? Every knee, every knee will bow. That's the physical response to Jesus being exalted. Every knee. And then, and it will not be denied, nor will this be debated that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will not be debated. Did you notice the vocal response here? Paul says that every tongue will do what? Debate whether this is true or not? No, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so this phrase, what's also interesting, Jesus Christ is Lord, it's actually probably the very first Christian confession or creed that was declared by the early church in a shorthand now for the gospel. In other words, Jesus Christ is Lord is the gospel in a nutshell. And so every week now that we gather together to worship Jesus Christ as Lord, let me tell you, it is a foretaste of the coming universal worship by all creation that Jesus Christ is the triumphant, majestic, sovereign God over all. At the same time, I want you to understand something very clearly here, that this text does not teach universalism. does not teach that every person will be saved. There will be no universal salvation for all people. But get this, there will be a universal confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Have you ever asked the question, which is kind of a dumb thing to ask, because in this last year, we have all asked this question, what is the world coming to? Have you not asked that? Perhaps you've even vocalized it to your spouse or to a friend. Or at least thought about it. What is this world coming to? And this text answers that the world is coming to a day when every created being will recognize Jesus Christ as Lord. And so history, Zach, I know you can appreciate this as a history teacher, it is not like a treadmill going nowhere. Rather, history is all moving toward a day to the glory of God the Father. Some will confess Him as Lord in everlasting joy, and I pray that is you. And others, though, will confess Him as Lord in everlasting torment. But all will acknowledge his lordship. No tongue will be silent. No knee will be unbowed. And so I plead with you, bow now before it's too late. 
confess now that Jesus is Lord while there is still time. We are still in this age of grace. And that means that the promise of Paul that he writes about in Romans 10, 9, and 10, that promise still stands for all of us here this morning. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. So confess now. Listen, confessing Jesus now is to receive his saving grace. But to confess Jesus later is to suffer his eternal judgment. Now, if we step back from all this, how should we respond? What do I make of this? How should we respond to to Christ's humble descent in his glorious ascent? And so first and foremost, we need to remember that Paul gives us this stunning example of Christ's humility to motivate us to do something, to motivate us to act. And that is to crush the kingdom of me mentality that invades all of us, that infects all of our hearts and threatens the unity and the harmony in the community of the church. Remember the context. Paul writes in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And you say, I don't know that I can do that with my family. I don't know that I can do that in the church or with my relationships at work. How, what, what do you, did you not just hear what Paul laid out before us at Christ's example? We are without excuse not to do that. You say, well, you don't understand my circuit. You don't understand my relationship. Stop right there. Time out. Did you not read what Jesus did here? So we must understand this humility, this mindset that Paul's calling us to, it is essential to Christian unity. In fact, we are commanded to have this mind of humility among ourselves that is in Christ Jesus. But here's the hope of it all. Because I know some of you live in circumstances or situations at home or in your workplace or maybe even here at church, I don't know, hope not, where it is, it is, it, it's hell on earth trying to crush your kingdom of me mentality and to live in Christ-like humility. Because the world walks all over people like that. Just like they walked all over Jesus. You say, well, How can I persevere in that? Where's the hope in that? Here's the hope in that. There is a reward for that. There's a reward for humility. Notice this. God exalts the humble for his glory. Therefore, trust God enough with your life that you don't live for people's affirmation now in this lifetime, but you wait for God's exaltation in his due time. Listen, the humble descent and glorious descent of Jesus shows that in his kingdom, this is the kingdom of God, the way up is down. The world will tell you the way up is to exalt yourself. Hang on to your rights and by all means and all costs necessary. And Jesus is showing us, no, the way up is down. It's repeated all through Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humble. And whoever humbles himself 
will be exalted. James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.6 says, humble yourselves. And do you see these verses? We are to do the humbling. And yes, Christ humbles us. When we stand before this majestic peak of who Jesus Christ is, when Paul lifts up Jesus Christ in his humility, it ought to humble us. And yet that motivates us now to respond in humility. And so Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Listen, in our kingdom of me culture, where everybody demands their rights, everybody exalts themselves. Just look at Instagram. Look at Facebook. That's what it's all about. Let us remember. Let life bridge. Let us as Christ, let us be different. Let us remember that in God's kingdom, the way up is down. Christ-like humility. It is continually needful. It is deliberately mindful. It is eternally hopeful, though. It will be rewarded by God the Father at the proper time. He will lift you up. And so trust God enough with your life that you don't live, you don't seek out other people's affirmation. But you wait for God's exaltation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, May we always remember that you are the one who humbles those who exalt themselves. And that you are the one who exalts those who humbles themselves. And so, Father, we humble ourselves before you today and we exalt Jesus Christ as Lord of us. Father, we need your help. Oh, desperately, we need your help. And so grant us the grace to live in Christian unity through Christ-like humility. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.